warm welcome to you in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Um, preaching for us and leading the service um, is uh, Jeff Thomas, PC. Uh, well, we'll turn again to the second epistle of Paul to Timothy and to chapter 4 and verses 6, 7, and 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now these words you see are the climax um, of this whole letter. No words of Paul are touched with such eloquence and genius and assurance and hope as we find in these familiar, magnificent words. There is no greater expression in all the Bible of victory where death is imminent, as you have heard in your hearing and not in any other book in human literature. The words are so personal and individual, the great I am with which this text begins. As for me, Paul is saying, because he's already said uh, to Timothy in opposition to this in verse 5, but as for you, and there's this memorable contrast, Paul ending his ministry, Timothy beginning his. The human termination of the relationship meant that it was all the more vital for Timothy by himself to keep his head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of his ministry, because soon he was going to be on his own. There was no Paul to consult, no Paul to quote, no Paul to hide behind. They were days of succession. And we see them in the Bible. We see how Joshua succeeded Moses, and Solomon succeeded David, and Timothy succeeded Paul, and on a much lower level, Frodery Brady is succeeding me. From all we have seen in the Houses of Parliament in recent weeks, you will appreciate that days of succession are difficult times. Then what can we learn? What can I learn from these words? You see, Paul is first looking around at his present situation. Then, secondly, he looks back at the grace of God, how he has brought him to the present situation. And finally, Paul looks ahead. He's soon to die. 
His life on earth is all behind him, but he is looking ahead. He has a future. The Christian on his deathbed has a future. Let's consider, first of all, then, Paul looking around. What Paul sees as he does that. Paul's time is short. He's on trial in Rome. He's chosen to go there to appeal to Caesar to speak up on behalf of every Christian and of every congregation, to give the church in all the Roman Empire the freedom to evangelize and to gather together in worship. He tells us in verse 17 that he has been brought safely through the first hearing, but he fears that he's not going to escape from Nero's clutches for the second time. What did he see then as he looked around that cold prison cell with his chain attached to a board legionnaire? He was sure that the end was near. He was facing the final curtain. But he says two things about his coming death. I am already being poured out like a drink offering and... The time has come for my departure. Well, let's look at those two things first of all then. I am being poured out as an offering to the living God who accepts me. I'm in someone else's hands. As the compare often says in the antiques program, uh, Bargain Hunt, we are in safe hands. And the Lord is grasping Paul firmly in love. And he won't let him go what he is doing is pouring out Paul. He's pouring him out like a drink offering. You know what's described for us in the Levitical sacrifices of the Old Testament. You know the Israelites made a sacrifice of a lamb or a heifer or a goat or pigeons and doves. And then there were the first fruits that they brought and gave them to the Lord and then there was the wineskin of the finest wine then that they had. And they would pour it out uh, alongside the altar as an offering of thanks to the living God who had sent the sun and the rain on them and given them health to enjoy all the crops that they had harvested. They were giving back to God what God had first given to them. So Paul is saying... My life is grasped by God. Before the foundation of the world, he knew me. He gave me to his son, and his son held me fast too. And then definitively, on the road to Damascus, he grasped me again. And then every year, every month, every day, God has been holding on to me, and he's been pouring me out. One long offering to God, my mind, my thinking, my physical strength, my spiritual energy, my labors, my passions, my prayers, my relationships, my hopes, and my dreams. We talk of some people who we look at and they are immensely talented and gifted. They pour their lives away in the pursuit of pleasure 
and fun. And it's not satisfied. They have to pour again and, get, uh, and again. They pour their lives away. Football players like George Best, actors like Richard Burton, even members of the royal family, wasted their lives. Now, some of your older members, you can remember a broadcaster and an author and a journalist named Malcolm Muggridge. You can remember him. He was often on TV in the, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, he died 26 years ago. He was the editor of Punch. He wrote his autobiography, two volumes, and he called those two volumes Chronicles of Wasted Life. It's a line from one of the sonnets of Shakespeare. Now, Malcolm Murgridge had a son, and his son's name is Len. And Len became a Christian, and Len went to London Bible College and studied there, and then he became a missionary in Austria. And... Um, Muggridge esteemed him very highly. And he prayed for his father, and a great change took place in Malcolm Muggridge's life. He became a supporter of uh, the Festival of Light. And he confessed Jesus Christ as his God and Savior. Last Sunday, Joshua Reynolds couldn't preach in my daughter's congregation, Catherine's congregation, in Wiltshire. He had his wisdom teeth taken out and he was owed the combat. And so they called me and they asked me if I could preach instead of him. So last Sunday I preached there. So I stood there in the uh, school where they are holding their meetings and who was sitting ten feet away from me in a wheelchair in the front row but Malcolm Muggridge's son, Len with his daughter and son-in-law. And we spoke together afterwards. He said every Sunday. He, he didn't come to hear me. It wasn't such a wasted life, was it? It wasn't just poured out down the tubes, as people say. There's so many people who are just giving their lives away. Their life. Young people despairing. Poor his whole life. It was a life that was poured out to God, offered to God. That's how he saw his relationship with God. He has me every day and every passing moment. And I'm spending my life for him and I'm being spent in his service it's, a, it's an offering of joyful thankfulness that I am making to God, the God who created me and blessed me with every spiritual blessing. Now, the world doesn't see the life of Paul like that, does it? Um, Paul, that Christian, Nero said, Rome said, he deserves his lifeblood to be poured out in a bloody execution. He's a liar and a blasphemer and a revolutionary, a disturber of the peace. He's preaching a false god, a rival to Nero. A quick bloody death would be too good for him. 
That's how the world judged Paul. But Paul said, I'm being held by a love, and that love will never let me go. And the offering I make of myself, it's being accepted by God. My muddled, mixed life is still accepted by God because it's being offered through Jesus Christ, my mediator with God. That's the first thing he says then about as he looks around. His life is being poured out. And then secondly, he says, this is the time of my departure. And you see the picture then, the ship is leaving port, and off it quietly moves. Anchor is weighed, ropes are slipped away from the quay. It's moving, and the gap is widening then between the quayside and the vessel. Out it goes, out it goes. As Tennyson wrote, sunset and evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no morning at the bar when I put out to sea, twilight and evening bell, and after that the dark, and may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. And that's the Christian approach to death. It's not annihilation. We're not going into nothingness. We're not going into eternal darkness. For Paul, his, his dying was a journey. He was going to the most wonderful place in heaven and earth. Dying was the beginning of a new life. C.S. Lewis puts it like this uh, in The Last Battle. The children are told that at death, you are beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now Paul is speaking here of uh, his, his death as a departure. And it's used of a prisoner's departure from jail. You think of it now, he's been in jail five years and uh, he's counting the months, and then he's counting the days, and he's counting the hours, and his whole sentence is finally complete, and he departs. He's a free man again, free at last, free at last. Free from this groaning universe of sin and death, under the prince of the power of the air, into the liberty of heaven. This is a Christian dying, a Christian is going to a place of freedom incomparably wonderful and blessed and every day would be more wonderful than the day before and Paul has a desire to depart to that place and be with Jesus which is far better so that's the first point Paul is looking around and he sees the two things that his life is being poured out and it's a time of departure secondly then what Paul saw is he looked back and here again there are three great convictions three causes of doxology of praise in his life i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the faith and so very nicely for me as a preacher the golden hammer touches this verse and it opens up into three parts does it not firstly i have fought the good fight it's a fight of course 
against the God of this world, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. It's a fight against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. It's a fight also against the unbelieving world system and the indwelling of original sin in our own hearts and lives. It's a fight against religious and pagan opposition. It's a fight against lies, deceit, errors, blasphemies, against persecution and perils. And Paul could never be off guard for a moment. As he said, he was in danger from bandits, in danger from his fellow countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Whatever direction he faced, north, south, east, west, there were dangers threatening. The beast that came out of the scene that attacks us has got seven heads. So we are fighting on multifarious fronts. And Paul never ran away. He was no coward. Uh, Kent Hughes describes Paul uh, imaginatively. Um, he sees him. I fought the good fight. He sees him dressed in the armor that he describes in Ephesians chapter 6. His belt is salt-stained through sweating over many long campaigns. It's as comfortable as an old harness on a shire horse, the belt of truth. His tarnished, shining breastplate is crisscrossed with many grooves from slicing sword blows that have rained down upon it. The breastplate has kept his heart and his lungs and vital organs safe. The breastplate of righteousness. He stands in studded war boots. They grip the ground so that he can take on an enemy coming from any direction without slipping and sliding. The footwear of the gospel of peace. Peace with God through reconciling grace in Christ and peace with God. A shalom in his own heart. It passes understanding. He holds in his hands a shield. Oh, Paul has a shield. And it's protected him from many a spear thrust and fiery dart. In close encounters, the shield of faith. None has broken through that shield. None has killed him. On his old grey head, there is a worn helmet that has seen better days. It's dented with blows that have struck him. But that helmet has saved him from death again and again. The helmet of salvation. Then there is Paul's sword. It's as sharp as a razor. It's a deadly weapon. The ultimate offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's led me through life. I don't know where I'd be without the teaching of the Apostle Paul. He has stood in that armor when he stood before kings Felix and Agrippa and also the officials of Rome. He was the consummate warrior, that colossus. He never gave an inch. And yet he had the heart of a child of God in all he did. He was more than conqueror through the love of Jesus Christ, who was the captain of his salvation. He could look back through many journeys. He would go into a, a, a country where there was no Christian. 
No Christian had ever gone before him. He would go into a city, a city of a million people like Corinth, and he would be the first city to go there. And so he could look back and he could say, I fought the good fight. It's not an ugly fight, mowing down children and women and old people and mothers with a truck and torturing and raping and murdering. This is a morally good fight. I fought the good fight, he says. Every challenge is good. Every skirmish is good. Every battle is good. Every war is good. Every victory is good. Every temporary defeat is also good. So we're in the middle of a fight, my friends. Come and join us. There's something wonderful about this good fight that we are engaged in all our lives. And you'll find soon enough when you become a Christian, as you drive home in the car after the service, you will discover soon enough that you're in a fight. As you look after a member of your family who has dementia, you will realize you are involved in a fight. But Paul had ended the fight. He completed the fight. May all of us complete the fight. I have fought the good fight. My fighting days are over, he says. He's going to a land of peace. Secondly, I finished the race. And he's speaking about the course that God has set for him. Men talk about a race course. Our race may be a sprint. It may be three miles. It may have a lot of jumps in it. It may be that. God had set a specific course for Paul. He told him quite clearly. He, was, he demonstrated at the beginning when his sight was recovered in Damascus. He told Paul what lay before him. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among them who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what he says, Acts 26, 16 to 18. That was the, that's the course. That's the race now, Paul, that you've got to take. And he was to keep on and on in it. He made no boast that he won the race, you, you'll notice that, but just that he'd finished it. He finished what he began. Like uh, J. Gresham Machen dying in a hospital of uh, pneumonia and pleurisy, uh, New Year's Day, New Year's Week, sending two telegrams to John Murray. And the first telegram said, the Reformed faith, isn't it wonderful? And the second telegram said, the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. John Murray taught him these things and they had become very precious to him. Stephen, the first martyr, 
finished his course by praying for the people that were throwing jagged bricks and stones, not smooth pebbles, into his body from five yards, five feet away. His last words, you know, they are there at the end of Acts 7. That's how it ends. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Magnificent. Magnificent. He's praying for his persecuting neighbors. He is loving his persecuting neighbors like his persecuted self. Or you think of Lloyd-Jones explaining why he could do 30 years at uh, Westminster Chapel. How could he do it? And all the demands that that made. He said, because I didn't do any stunts. He finished the race. Now, every one of us here tonight is who are Christians, you've got uh, a course laid out before you. We are to run with patience the race that is set before us, each one of us. We have a unique course. I can't run your course, and you can't run my course. Some courses seem so straightforward, don't they? Came out of college, I was home in Wales for a year and you called me and that was my course then for 50 years straightforward others seem to be unbelievably difficult some seem to go through darkness for miles and miles others are uphill all seem to be long but all are enormously satisfying we would not change our blessed estate for all the world cause good or great some courses oh they were so short weren't they David Brainerd's course um, Henry Martin's course uh, McShane's course how brief they were Jim Elliot's course all too brief but um, our Heavenly Father he measures out the length the, the difficulties it suits it to us and prepares us for the course. And Paul meets the elders at Ephesus, you remember, and uh, he, he charges them with what they've got to do. And then he speaks about his own future and his own longing. When he gets in the boat and waves them goodbye at Ephesus and off he goes to the next calling that God has for him. If only, he says, I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord. That I may finish my course, that I may finish this race and the ministry, the service that I receive from the Lord. Acts 20, 24. And now ten years have passed since Ephesus and his farewell. And now he's in this prison in Rome and he's writing this letter. And I finished, I finished the race finished the race. I once preached for KICU, the Cambridge University Christian Union, for their uh, Christmas carol service. And it was held in Holy Trinity Church, uh, the famous church in the middle of uh, Cambridge, which once knew the ministry of Charles Simeon. And it was the church from which Henry Martin went out to Iran. It was Persia in those days to be uh, a preacher. 
And I looked for the painting and I found it. It is still up in a prominent place in the minister's room there. Now, Charles Simeon loved Henry Martin. It was about 20 years later. And he loved the portrait. And he would say to visitors, as he would show them around the church, There! See that blessed man. What an expression of countenance. No one looks at me like he does. And he never takes his eyes off me. And he seems always to be saying, Be serious. Be in earnest. Don't trifle. Don't trifle. Paul finished his race. And then the third thing he says, as he looks back, I've kept the faith. Now, Paul wasn't always popular. And uh, you weren't always in your comfort zone when he taught you and spoke to you. He wasn't always easy to understand, Peter says. But he was always faithful in his calling. Now, many of you have read uh, J.C. Ryle's Holiness. I've given some of you copies of Holiness, and some of you promised if we gave you free copies, you would read it, and I hope you are getting on. Now, J.C. Ryle has a sermon on this text that I'm preaching to you tonight. I want you to go back and read it. Um, It's the chapter called Assurance, and it's on these words. And this is what he says on this phrase, I have kept the faith. Paul is saying, I've held fast that glorious gospel which was committed to my trust. I haven't mingled it with men's traditions. I haven't spoiled its simplicity by adding my own inventions. I haven't allowed others to adulterate it without withstanding them to their face. The Christian is happy who, as he quits the world, can leave such testimony behind him. A good conscience will save no man. It will wash away no sin. It will lift us not one hair's breadth nearer heaven. Yet a good conscience can be a, a very pleasant visitor at our bedside, when we are dying. There's a fine passage in Pilgrim's Progress which describes the passage across the river of death by a Christian called Old Honest. The river, Bunyan said, at that time overflowed its banks. It was powerful and rushing down, overflowing the banks. It was very threatening. But Old Honest, in his lifetime had spoken to a man whose name was called Good Conscience. And he asked him to meet him there at the banks of that river, which he did. And he lent him his hand and he helped him across the river. It is a good conscience that is helping Paul to say here at the end, I've kept the faith I can say that. I can say it because of God's grace to me. I have kept the faith. I've kept the testimony. 
I've kept the pulpit. I've kept the table. I've kept the membership. I've kept the bookshop. I have preached the saving faith of Christ. I've lived it. I've been faithful to it. My life has been and remains tonight a gospel life. It's not diminished one bit. I'm not like some men um, who, when they are middle-aged, they disparage the evangelical faith they once held. And they say, ah, when we were young Christians, we thought we knew it all. I never thought I knew it all. I know I do not know it all tonight. But I, who signed a doctrinal basis, when I joined the Christian Union at Cardiff University in 1959 and signed those 12 points of doctrine, I believed them. I believe them still. I can say today what Ernest Kevin's father said to him on his deathbed. Son, the great truths of the gospel, I have believed all my life. I believe them yet. God has a right to my full faith. An undoubting faith, an unhesitating faith. We don't live by our first belief in Christ, but through continually believing in him. It is not because of our faith we will be saved. Because our faith didn't die for us. Our faith didn't rise from the dead for us. Our faith isn't at the right hand of God praying for us. That is Jesus. Our hopes are in Jesus only. I can no more live by yesterday's faith than I can see by yesterday's light or find strength from yesterday's food or slake my thirst from yesterday's water. I'm keeping my faith. I'm keeping my faith in Christ. So, there we are, men and women, the second point, and those are the three famous claims that the Apostle Paul makes. It's a remarkable statement. It doesn't mean he was perfect. In Romans chapter 7, he tells the other truth that all of us also know, that the good that we would do, we often do not do. He refers to himself as the chief of sinners. But he has accomplished all that God has called him to do. He's overcome as he battled for the truth. He didn't succumb to false teachers. He wasn't bribed by men's smiles. He wasn't intimidated by their frowns. He didn't drop out of the race. He kept going and he crossed the finishing line. He'd been faithful. And he tells this to Timothy. He's not boasting. He's not at all bragging. Because he wants Timothy and he wants every Christian, like I want every one of you, to see that this is attainable. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Some of us will not be alive in ten years' time. And we don't know who will be alive in ten days' time. But uh, even at this late date, then, then... There is more for you to do. However little life lies before you. There is more for you to do than you've done so much. You must be steadfast and abounding always in the work of the Lord. 
what God, by his great grace, has helped me to do and has helped many of you to do. Grace is omnipotence abounding towards us to energize us and sanctify us and it enables us to live a useful life for the Lord. And then lastly this then what Paul saw as he looked ahead. Verses 7 and 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So what does he anticipate now as he looks ahead? Well firstly he anticipated an evaluation, a divine evaluation of his life. A judgment, a vindication, a reward. We live in a moral universe and what you sow you will also reap. And if you sow to yourself lust and pride and unbelief, then these will invariably, inexorably reap for you destruction. That which a man spits against heaven will fall back in his own face. Absolute evil calls for absolute judgment. There are too many atrocities in the history of our world for there to be no day of judgment. The instinct of retribution is one of the strongest instincts in the human heart. God has placed it there because we are in his image and likeness. You know this, sinner. However you chaff and grind your teeth when I warn you of hell, when you call my words obscene, you have some inkling that you will stand and give an account at the day of judgment. You know what happens at three o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep and God reminds you of the follies and the cruelties of your past. But if men fight the good fight and run the race and keep the faith, then, ah, what eternal blessing lies before us. All are to be judged. We can no more avoid the judgment than we can avoid dying. God does not pay weakly, but the unavoidable God does pay at the end. Oh, it's a very powerful thought. You know, it came to Augustine once. Augustine says, nothing has contributed more powerfully to wean me from all that held me down to earth than the thought constantly dwelt upon of death and the last judgment. You will get from God what you have chosen. You will get from God exactly what you deserve. As death leaves us, so judgment will find us. You know, effective morality, it needs the divine sanction of an ultimate evaluation of our lives. It needs that. 
It is so. If Jesus is true. Because he spoke frequently and tenderly and earnestly to his disciples and to the crowds that followed him about this. And on that day there will just be two verdicts, guilty or not guilty, condemned or justified. God holds a golden scepter and an iron rod. And those who will not bow to the one will be broken by the other. We must fall into the arms of Christ or into the flames of hell. Isaac Watts wrote, Just as the tree cut down that falls to north or southward, there it lies, so man departs to heaven or hell, fixed in the state wherein he lies. And then you will see, as he looked forward, he anticipated meeting the Lord. That's what he says in the passage before you we are looking at. That he will meet the Lord, the righteous judge. He won't be meeting a judge like the Sanhedrin judges. He won't be meeting judges like Felix or like Festus. He won't be meeting judges like the magistrates in Philippi that whipped him and Barnabas and put them in stocks in a stinking dungeon. He won't be meeting Nero's lackeys who have passed the judgment of long incarceration on innocent Paul. He's not going to face the judges of the Middle East or the judges of North Korea or other fiercely anti-Christian judges or even politically correct judges. No, that's not going to judge him. Paul and every Christian will face, what does he say? The righteous judge. It's there in the text before you. The righteous judge. The only righteous judge. Utterly, absolutely, infinitely righteous in heaven or in hell. His throne is built on justice. And he must see that righteousness prevails. The God who knows every fact. The God that knew the pressure you were under when you did what you did. When you blurted out the words you blurted out when you hurt the people you loved and who depended on you. This judge will bring every factor into consideration. He's a righteous judge. And this judge will judge Paul and every Christian as those that are joined to Jesus Christ. Who in Jesus Christ have been condemned who in Jesus Christ have been judged in the anathema, in the darkness, and in the grave. And he has been condemned. Christ has been condemned for every deviation from God's holy law, from all our sins of omission from all the things we forgot about and did not even realize that they were sins as we did them. Christ bore them, their guilt, their blame, in his own dear body on the cross. The judge is Christ himself. The Christ who loved us and hung there in the darkness with Paul and us on his heart 
when we stand before Christ, we will be standing in Christ. The Lord Jesus, the judge, he himself made payment for every deviation of Paul from what is good and perfect and acceptable to God. Do you think he's going to condemn us for those sins again? Our clever sins? Our cunning sins? Our hypocritical sins? Do you think we're going to be punished again for them when Christ has been punished once and for all for them? Never. No sin of Paul's, no sin of omission, no secret sin, no sin against much light and blessing. No cruel sins that encourage other people to sin and fall has not been cleared, has not been dealt with completely, comprehensively in the eyes of the ancient of days. He's dealt with them all. Pardon, justified, well done, good and faithful servant. So he, he will be judged, and he will be judged by the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. And then again, he anticipates a crown of righteousness. Now, they are solemn words, and they are eternal words. Do we understand the weight of these words? Do we understand this? That we face the day of judgment secure in believing that we will be pardoned, that we will be justified and accepted in the presence of God, and that that does not mean that we think of it in terms of dressing up to go to Buckingham Palace in our finery to have our photograph taken and have a medal from the Queen. It is not to be like that. It is not to be a glorified school prize day in which we receive our school certificates. It is a coronation. That's what he says. That's what he says. The crown is the righteousness of Christ. It's been imputed to him on the road to Damascus. But now it is experienced. That righteousness. It is enjoyed. It is suffused through his body, through his mind, through his thinking, through his affections, through his spirit. It envelops him. It transfigures him so that there is not a cell in the whole of his body that is not redolent with the righteousness of Christ. He is like him. He is just like Christ in every virtue and in every grace. That's his reward. It's a reward. When Jesus was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he told his disciples then, these young chaps, he said, great will be your reward in heaven. Not in this world. In this world, men would hate them and stone them and set their dogs on them and they would die cruel deaths. But they would have a great reward, Jesus said. There is nothing in the Bible about so-called nobility of disinterested virtue. That's the great phrase, isn't it? From the moralist. The nobility of disinterested virtue. 
that you do a thing because it's right. You don't, you don't, you don't fuss about rewards. You say, you Christians talking about rewards. But God says, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what God says. And we are to never forget that there is a reward that lies before us and that it is commensurate with the giver himself. He doesn't make empty gestures. When he gives rewards, he doesn't give trinkets. Faithful service is rewarded on a divine scale. King of kings gives a crown of righteousness to those who have served him. They may have served him you a small corner. It may be a very small corner. It may be absolutely obscure. Nobody in, in all the world knows what this Christian woman is doing. What this Christian man is doing for Jesus. But there they, in that obscurity, they, they've shone. They've raised their children. They've taught their children. They've prayed for their children. They've helped their neighbors. They've lived a Christian life. The cup of cold water is going to be rewarded gloriously. It's a magnificent reversal of Nero's verdict. Nero gave Paul the axe. He gave him the nails and the sledgehammer. He gave him the sword and the execution block, whatever it was. God gave him glorification into the image of Christ. The crown of righteousness. And then, finally, we see here how Paul anticipated every Christian, every Christian, receiving the same reward. Not to me because I'm an apostle. Not just to me. Every Christian is going to have a, a crown of righteousness. Or, how does he describe Christians? Well, they've kept the faith, they've run the race, they've finished the course but now he says, they longed. They longed and longed and longed for the appearing of Jesus. They wanted to see him. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to smile at him. They wanted him to hear him say their names. They wanted to be with him forever and ever. There's nothing exclusive or narrow about Paul, is there? His hope as wide as the ocean and as high as the heaven above. And all of us, Timothy too, you and me, we, we will have a glorious welcome by God. This uh, crown of righteousness, it will be given to as many as the sands on the seashore. It will be given to as many as uh, the stars in the heavens above. No one overlooked no one failed to have a reward. And these people fought the good fight, kept the faith, finished the course. Paul defines them as their longing, their longing to see Jesus. We sing about it, don't we? Don't we? We're longing for this day. How wonderful, how marvelous the sight of thee must be. Thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. Father of Jesus, love's reward. What rapture it will be, prostrate to lie before thy throne and gaze and gaze on thee.
The disciples long to see him. They want to be with him. Disciples have that living hope. They have many a heartache and many a disappointment in this world. But they know it's not going to end in darkness and annihilation. And nothingness is going to end with a sight, with a beatific vision. With a sight of Jesus welcoming us. Well done. Good and faithful servant, he will say. He, he said it. I am going to prepare a place for you. So that where I am, there you will be also. Because he lives, we shall live also. Oh, death, where is your victory? This is our future. You know the devil is whispering now in some of your ears because we're not ignorant of his devices. The devil is whispering in some of your ears, it's too good to be true. Heaven is too good to be true. That's what the devil says. Well, you can either believe the devil or you can believe Jesus. What are you going through life depending on? Hunches? An article that you read in, in one of the daily papers? Something you heard a film star say? Or are you going to trust the words of Jesus Christ? Believe them, O oh, sinner, believe them. I am the truth, he says. There was no more loving man, holy man, sane man, wise man than this Jesus. And as you look back, I can tell you, goodness and mercy have led you all the days of your life because you are here tonight hearing of the love of Jesus Christ for you and the hope of heaven. God's goodness and mercy to you has led you to this. And as you look around, you see the marks that there are people here. And the only explanation of how they've lived until now is that the grace of God has been an energy, a power in their lives that's kept them. He's been so good to you. And as you look ahead then to a certain death, and a certain throne of justice, and a certain righteous judge, then uh, you must also say, and a crown, and a crown, a crown of righteousness that he's going to give me, because I've, I just want to see him. And not many people in the world I want to see, no great man, no, no, I, I could, quite happy going through life without ever meeting presidents and prime ministers, but oh, for me to see my Jesus. For my, my heart to be satisfied in being with Jesus Christ. The one who lived after he died. That's my longing. And Christians have that longing. Just Christians. Just Christians. Oh, come and join us. May that longing fill you from head to foot. May you be moved by it to serve this Savior. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray, and help us to be able also to say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Help us to say that, and then to have that hope of the crown of righteousness given to us in that great day. Oh, may we have it. We don't deserve it, Lord. We are so fearful of hypocrisy in our own hearts. Oh, God. Have mercy on us and bless us and keep us, we pray.
day by day, every passing moment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.